Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have been always active in history. You have always had a desire to have a people for yourself. What's amazing to us, Lord, is that we are those people, that you have chosen us out of your mere good pleasure, that you continue to shower your love and your care and your goodness upon us again and again and again, though we are not worthy of it in any way. We're so thankful, Father, for the truth that you have given us in your word. We're so thankful that we see there what, we, you, what you have done for us in Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to better understand the truth of who you are and what you are doing in Christ for us. We pray that as we uh, continue looking at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that we would have a deeper understanding of Scripture and a deeper awareness of, uh, of you and of your love. We pray that these things won't just simply make us intellectually smarter, but that it would change us into more loving people. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks, so we uh, continue through the catechism. Um, last week, you'll remember that we looked at the question, we were discussing what God's decree was several weeks ago, and God's decree, as we saw, is his eternal purpose. It's what he's always purposed, Right? according to the counsel of his own will. So the only one driving what God determines is himself. There is no external factor at work moving God to do the things that, or uh, moving God to choose the things that he chooses, all that other stuff. And we saw that he foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. There is nothing outside the sovereign control of God. So we saw that several weeks ago. Last week, we had this wonderful little question, question eight, how does God execute his decrees? God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. And like everything else we've been saying about the the shorter catechism is that always gives us a surface level understanding, but there's always so much room to dig in. And when you start thinking about it, God, all his action, all his work divides into these two major phases, creation and providence, his superintending the created world. And we've compared his decree, like to us coming up with a plan for building a house, and then we said, okay, creation is like the building of that house, providence is like the maintenance of that house, with all the differences that we've talked about, you know, those are finite examples compared to his infinite examples, but that's what we've been doing, and then last week we looked particularly at what creation was, and we had uh, that question, the work of creation is God's making all things of nothing, so we talked about God. have, doesn't have to use pre-existing material. He created not just everything around us, but that includes space and time. Those very things themselves are creations. That He did it by the word of his power. He simply just wills it, and it is. Uh, and then in the space of six days, and we discussed what that meant, and how you know modern um, attempts to to undermine the biblical account, and you know we kind of we'll deal a little with, a little bit with that again today. And then we ended up with that section, and all very good, and we examined what that meant, that in the end the creation was something that was good, and everything that's evil in the world, we understand now, is not because of creation, it has to do with us. And that leads us to today's question that I want us to look at, and we're going to do that together, question 10. Again, either you have your own pocket version of the Shorter Catechism, or you can use the Trinity Hymnal. Uh, Is it about page 870, I think, if you look in the Trinity Hymnal, will that get us to question 10, maybe 871? 870? 
Okay. Um, so we're going to do question 10, and let me ask if somebody will kindly read that question and the corresponding answer. Question 10. All right, thank you so much, Phil. How did God create man? The answer that we have here is, again, one of those that, bare minimum, okay, I kind of understand the words, but there's so much there that we're going to try to dig into a little bit here. God created man, male and female, after his own image and knowledge, righteousness and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. You know, um, when you go see a doctor, right, a doctor has to kind of figure out what's wrong with you when you, when you have symptoms. You know, if somebody is dealing with cancer, right, uh, Cancer is caused by any number of things. So let's just um, uh, kind of come up with a, um, one of the more typical ones. You're exposed to radiation, right? Had a had a friend of mine who used to be uh, enlisted in the Air Force, and uh, he used to work on the flight line. And um, one day he was standing in front of an F4 uh, wild weasel, F4G wild weasel, and uh, these airplanes have really big, strong radars. And you're not supposed to turn them on when there's somebody standing in front of you. Uh, you know, some of our guys who fly uh, hopefully know that. And, um, but unfortunately, that um, uh, whatever safety features were supposed to take place to prevent that uh, didn't happen. And this guy flipped it on. And he felt really, really warm because he was being cooked by that radar. And uh, it left him immediately sterile and in time gave him cancer. So the radiation was the cause of the cancer, right? The cause. But the symptoms that the cells were you know, mutating and, and, and acting in ways that were not appropriate, a doctor can only tell this is wrong because he has something or she has something to compare and say, this is right. This is a healthy body. This is the way a healthy body should look. Then there's some cause that changes it and makes it look, you know, bad. Well, the reason I'm saying that, I think we all agree that I'm just stating the obvious. We all know that, right? We know what healthy bodies look like and that the way we can, we can see when we uh, are examining somebody and we can say, that's not right. That should not be that way. Well, let's think of something much more broad than just our human bodies. Everybody today, I mean, coming up on election on Tuesday, everybody today is trying to figure out what's wrong with the human race. Most people, except a very, very, very select few, have figured out that something's wrong, right? And there's all sorts of answers, you know, of what's wrong, and there's all sorts of answers of how we're going to fix it. And, 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 and this is coming from every part of the political spectrum. And I'm just talking about politics just because we have an election, but... It's, it goes beyond politics. You've got philosophers, ideologies, religions. They all are attempting to see what's wrong. They're like that doctor, and they're looking, and they're saying, you know, look at the way, oh, that marriage fell apart. Why should marriages fall apart? And there's all sorts of answers. Well, because this person is mean. Oh, no, it has nothing to do with that. It's just the way we, the way we evolved, and, uh, you know, and, and we, we can't be monogamous. We need that. You know, so it's all sorts of explanations. Today's question gives us means by which we can understand what's wrong with humanity. Even though it's not dealt with necessarily first in this question, it does give us the baseline of what humanity was meant to be and how God created it. Remember, and all very good. We saw that last week. So this is going to look at specifically the creation of man 
And we can't really figure out what's wrong with man until we figure out how we used to be before the fall. So cancer, that's the cause. You know, radiation, that was the cause of that cancer. Sin, as we'll see as we get to those questions very, very soon, sin is the cause of that brokenness in man. But because we don't have any examples in our day-to-day life of healthy people in that regard, spiritually speaking, uh, you can only find them in Scripture. You can only find a description in Scripture. If people reject what the Scripture teaches, they don't have then the right information by which they can properly assess what's really wrong with human beings. So this is a, a very key, uh, not quite, you know, the question is, of course, just pointing us back to Scripture. So it's a very key doctrine. It's a doctrine of anthropology, and you, know, you all know anthropology from your college studies is the study of men, of, of human beings, but in reality, we use that in theology. Theology proper is the study of God, right, from theos, from God, anthropos, man, Anthropology is our study of man. So this is what, the, what does the Bible have to say about human beings? And without this knowledge of what we were, the way we were created before the fall, we can't figure out why things have gone wrong and what we should look like. Does that make sense? So that's why this is such a vital uh, lesson that we're gonna do today. So let's take a look at a couple things. Let's have somebody turn to Genesis chapter one and read verses 27 through 28. And while we're doing that, somebody else could turn to Ephesians 4.24. Um, but we'll start with Genesis 1.27 through 28. And if you get there, would you please read it nice and loud for everyone? Great. Thank you, Jared. And so uh, we'll be looking at those passages. That answers almost everything that is in the catechism question. You can see it's coming straight out of Scripture straight out of Genesis 1 through 27 through 28, with the exception of in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, and that'll be our Ephesians chapter 4 passage, if somebody's got that, Ephesians 4, 24. All right, so thank you. Um, let's go ahead and take the catechism question itself now, and what I want to do is just work my way through each one of those clauses and unpack what that means for us. We've looked at the scripture passages. Those aren't the only ones we'll look at, but at least it gets us started. And the very first thing I think we want to do is put this in context since we've been talking about the creation. We often refer to human beings as the crown of creation. God created the creation with a very specific purpose, kind of like a big ship. It needs to have a captain. Human beings were created to be not just the pinnacle of creation, but the stewards of it. God places us because we're made in his image. I'm going to explain a lot of those terms in just a moment, but because we're made in his image, we become his reflection, as it were, his image, his steward here on earth, and everything that God does, we do. We do. So God creates, we create. We've already you know, talked about that a little bit last week and those sorts of things. And so the creation is incomplete without human beings. Now, again, everything we learn in Scripture helps us to be able to look at our society and look at the wrong views, the, the, the wrong worldviews that exist Today, one of the most common uh, aspects of a secular worldview is that human beings are not only not necessary for creation, but we are a, a blight on creation, that we are a parasite, that we are you know, the ones holding it down. Why do we people say that? Because again, they do not take the biblical view into account. 
they're trying their best, because people are not nuts. They really are trying to wrestle with what's in front of them. They're trying to figure out the brokenness they see and where men go. They see destruction and they see, yes, um, uh, economic uh, destruction as well as people destroying one another and all that. And so they conclude, we're the problem. Uh, and in one sense, that's true. But they don't look at it biblically and recognize that the solution was not a world without human beings. The solution is a world with human beings who behave and who think and who feel the way God had initially intended for them. In other words, either original humans, of which there are none left, uh, you know, pre-fall humans, or redeemed humans, which is what you are and where you're headed to become what God had intended as we superintend the creation. Does that make sense? So this is why these things are always important because they really do help us to be able to counter all the umbilical views that are out there. But man is meant to be the captain of this great ship, the leader of this great army that God has created, which is the creation. And um, as we uh, talked a little bit about uh, last week, and I don't want to jump into it uh, too much, answering this question of evolution that has come up, and especially this thing uh, that we've been talking about with theistic evolution, the very question itself uh, points out God created man. And it doesn't say directly uh, in, in the catechism question. They weren't dealing with some of those issues, but as we saw in Genesis last week, God takes man from the ground, molds him, breathes life into him. And the whole uh, claim of our theistic evolutionist friends is that God is superintending the process of evolution. Remember, they're trying to marry the biblical account with evolutionary uh, claims and science. And so God takes a, 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 a pre-existing creature, not like we see biblically where God just takes uh, 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 the components of man and breathes life into it, but rather he takes Lucy, if that name means anything to you, uh, uh, you know, a hominid, and then breathes the image into her. There's a whole lot of problems with that view. One of those, of course, which is the most obvious, is it contradicts Genesis 2-7. The Lord formed a man of the dust of the ground, as we talked about, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And we already said last week that word nephesh. It means to be made alive. So you can't grab a living hominid and breathe life into it. And then the passage goes on to say, and man became a living soul. Um, he took something that was inert and he brought it to life. So uh, it just the whole theistic evolution thing, just on Genesis 2-7, is already out of bounds. The other mistake is this idea that what God was doing, and I've seen whole articles written, they're, they're somewhat technical, and I'll just try to cover a little bit of what this uh, is getting at. But what their claim is that when God takes Lucy, uh, you know, the, the pre-hominid, and those will become Adam and Eve and so on. First of all, you have to take two, right? And it doesn't, there it says he took one, and that was Adam, and that Eve is later brought from, from Adam. But in the, in the theistic evolution, that doesn't work that way. You've got to take two of them and turn them into Adam and Eve, so that's the other contradiction. And what you do is you breathe into them, not life, because they're already alive, so you breathe into them the image of God. 
The problem with that is that it's completely dualistic. Does anybody know what I mean when I say that term? Any of you guys who have looked and studied philosophy in college and so on? Anybody know what dualism is? Is that a term that has come across your radars perhaps? Right? You might actually already be familiar uh, with the concept. In fact, I suspect most of you are, if, even if you've never heard the term. So dualism teaches the idea that the body is bad, material things are bad, and the soul and angelic things and spiritual things are good. Ever heard that? Okay. It comes from Plato, and it's uh, often called Platonic dualism. And Christians buy into it all the time. And it's this idea, uh, you hear all, what's our goal? Our goal is that we're going to die and leave behind these mortal you know, bodies, and our soul is going to go to heaven. And, and that is a wrong-headed view, because that's not a biblical view. What did we read last week? God made man, body and soul, and he declared it what? Very good. He didn't say, the soul's very good and the body, eh, I'm not really quite sure about, you know. No. All very good, body and soul. Death, the punishment of death, is the separation of who we are. But you are not a soul inhabiting your body, and that's really you and your, your body. You know, I, I hear, I, it drives me nuts. When I go to a funeral and you see the pastor saying something like, that's not Aunt Mildred, that's not her. She's in heaven right now. And it's true that her soul has ascended. But that is her. That's why we, by the way, it's why the church buries people. And over the centuries, we did not cremate. No, I'm not, if you cremated Aunt Mildred, please, I'm not saying that she's going to hell or you're going to hell or whatever. But historically, we resisted that because pagans cremated bodies because there was no value attached. Jesus died for your body and soul. Death separates us for a while, but the whole of the resurrection is to bring those two back together and make you whole. Our end state is not to be little spirits flitting around in heaven with little cherubic wings and ding, 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 heart. That, that's, that's not going to happen anyway. But that is what, in a lot of Christians' minds, we have this idea that we have to leave behind, you know, the body. No, God created the body, and we are here to reform and to redeem the whole of the material world. Jesus' program is a cosmic program of redemption, and he's redeeming the material world along with the spiritual world. The idea that the image of God that is just poured into you is wrong-headed. Your bodies, you, body and soul, reflect the image of God. Does that make sense? You, body and soul, are the image of God, not Here's my shell, and then the image gets poured in as if it somehow could be separated from the body. Let me give you an idea. I just said earlier, God creates. We already saw that he creates ex nihilo, and as we said last week, ex nihilo, out of nothing. We can't. We're finite. Every one of our reflections, he's the reality, we're the image, we reflect God. But everything that we reflect, we do it in a finite way as opposed to his infinite way. So he can... He can create out of nothing. You and I cannot. So what do we need to do? Not a trick question. What do we need to do? Use what we have. Use what we have, okay. Manipulate matter. How do we manipulate matter? Not a trick question. Say again. Create it. I, I, I don't know. I wish I could sit there. Because if that's the case, I'd be saying... Boom, Ferrari. <laughs> Boom.
you know, it, I, so, mm, no, what, 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 what do we do? Who had breakfast this morning? Okay. Did you create breakfast or did it magically appear? Bing! You probably had to manipulate some things. You created something, but you, 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 you right? You did, you manipulated it. Did you manipulate it with the powers of your mind? What did you do? It's not a trick question. You used your hands. You used your eyes to see. You, you see, you can't even be God's image to create without using your body. In fact, he gave you your body so that you can reflect him. You see that? So it's a very important point is our bodies are good, our souls are good in their created state. They're both corrupted by sin. We'll talk about once you understand this, you can begin to really understand other parts in Scripture, like total depravity, the fact that everything has been uh, touched by, by sin and corrupted. But the key thing is that this whole concept of theistic evolution, while it's a nice attempt uh, to try to marry the two, uh, it's just like you know churches before the Reformation um, that held to tradition and, and, and so on. And many of them, you know, continued on after the Reformation with this view that, that it's, it's the Bible plus tradition or the authority of the magisterium or, you know, whatever the case may be. Whenever you do all those two things and try to equate them, one always ends up taking uh, you know, uh, pride of place. And so tradition ends up trumping uh, Scripture. And so the same thing, I'm trying to marry Scripture to unbelieving scientific understanding. Notice, not to science, because science itself is just the interpretation of God's creation, and Christians can do it. In fact, modern science, this is a story for another day, was created by Christians, and all the scientists today with their scientific method and all that other stuff are using borrowed capital from from the Christian worldview. It would be impossible to do modern science without Christianity. What? What is he talking about? Go read The Soul of Science by Nancy Piercy, one of the most uh, uh, insightful minds of our generation. Um, and if you have questions, we, we can talk. But, um, but basically, when you sit there and you say, science and scripture, unbelieving science's views and scripture, I'm gonna try to marry them, one of them is always gonna step on the other. And guess which one is stepping on which? The theistic evolution is trampling all over scripture. Uh, so that's why I point these things out. Okay. Questions about that, that's really not even what I wanted to talk about here. That's just sort of getting that out of the way before we can jump into what's in there. But any questions about that? Absolutely crystal clear or absolutely so muddled that you have no idea what I said. Okay. I'm suspect it's the crystal clear because you guys are sharp. All right, let's jump into the catechism and question. Just take it apart. The very first line... God created man, male and female. Let's not get hung up on the word man. That's sexist. That's the way people talk and can still talk because it's very clear of the very next line that it doesn't just mean males. It didn't say God created males. You know, God created man, male and female. God created human beings, male and female. Everything here helps us to understand our society and our culture and what's messed up about it. God created one human race, God created man, but he created them with two sexes. Please do not say gender. Gender is something that ungodly secular people introduced the concept of in regard to human beings in order to undermine the biblical view of sex. God created human beings with two different sexes, 
gender, the word gender is something that was used until recently only of grammar. Some of you remember growing up in school and they would say that noun is masculine or feminine or neuter or neutral, right? Gender is assigned. Those words were not necessarily, there's nothing inherent about a word that makes it masculine. It's an assigned convention. The introduction of the word gender to our bodies is, attempt, is an attempt and has been exceedingly successful to get you to think that your sex is also assigned. Your sexuality is something that you can also pick according to convention. So that you literally have teachers now, you can watch it on TikTok or whatever, coming out and saying there is no such thing as sex or gender and it's whatever you make up and so if and of course, you're, most of you are saying they're saying that that's ludicrous. I, I suspect most of you are saying that, and yet it's now widely believed. And little kids are hearing this, and that's all they hear. And it's 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 the emperor has no clothes again. You keep saying something, and people after a while will just sit there and say, "I, I guess that's what it is," even though they can see the evidence. You know, I take showers. I can see the evidence. You take a shower. You can see the evidence. Male and female, right? That's not too hard to tell a difference. Kindergarten cop, that little boy figured it out. You guys, I don't have to repeat that. If you know the movie, you know the little ones can figure it out. It's kind of like obvious. And yet we're stating, uh, you know, for those of you who, who know Star Trek, is there four lights or is there five? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, it was a torture technique. And it's a, it's a famous Star Trek episode, but uh, it was used in real life, unfortunately, Nazis and so on. Uh, I show you three lights, and I keep beating you, and I keep telling you those are four lights, and make you say that there are four lights. Because once I can tell you, make you say what you know is not true, but out of fear for your well-being and so on. And if, if you don't think that happens, look at any authoritarian country, or look at our media today. Uh, and I, I'd say that, not joking. I don't want to lose my job, and so I will say what's obvious. What riots in 2020? I don't remember any riots. You can get people to say stupid things, right? So this tells us right from the very beginning, God created man, male and female. Sets the stage right there, two different sexes. We read in Genesis 1.27, those very words. Does it say God created man, male, and then he gave him a slave race called women? Is that what it says? No. Or today, we have to flip it. God created women, wise, intelligent, made in his image, and then he gave them dumb oxes of men who are Al Bundy, boo, you know, that kind of thing. No, no. God created men and, and women equal, right? And remember, this is the same as the Trinity. Remember what we said about the Trinity? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which is the superior God? There isn't, because it's one God, and they're the same. It's not working. Um, but in terms of their roles, the Son submits to the Father. The Spirit submits to the, the, to the Father and the Son, right? God created man, male and female, one humanity, equal, and, right? Women are just as have the same dignity, they're made in the image of God, and so on. But in terms of the marriage relationship, the husband, the wife, you know, that kind of thing, it's in terms of role, 
not in terms of their ontology, their very being, right? So all that is in the very, it's in Genesis 127. And it changes the way you look at human relations. And it goes counter to everything that's being taught. And it fixes the so-called battle of the sexes or the war of the sexes, or now nobody says war of the sexes. That was a 60s and 70s term. Uh, some of you might remember. Um, but it just it erases all those stupid things being said. Right? And by the way, if God created you, male or female, you don't get to flip the switch. And, and I'll just say this as an aside. Ladies, the feminist movement was an ungodly attempt to usurp the God-given role of women. Role, this here. Uh, rather, to usurp the... The, the right, the, the, that relationship between husband and wife and so on. It was an attempt to usurp roles. It did not address the physiology. The trans movement, if you want to call it that, and really the whole homosexuality movement, is going after the physiology, going after the body. That's why you see feminists now saying, that's not what we ever meant. That's not what we meant. You know, to go on and to say that all it means, uh, um, and we were just discussing that. Is that y'all? I think we were just discussing that this, this weekend while we were together. Uh, and I know some of the guys were discussing this um, in one of our uh, last men's grill night. Um, but if all it means to be a woman is I just wear frilly little dresses, and I do a whole lot of this, and I cry a lot, which is what some of these people are saying is what it is, as a woman, you should be insulted. There's a whole lot more to being a woman. I've never been one, but I'm married to a wonderful one, and she's so much more complex and deep and full and you know well-rounded in everything that she is. And it's, does she wear frilly dresses? Yes. Um, is she pretty? Yes. But to just sit there and say, that's it. Throw on some makeup, throw on a dress, and go running around, ah! and all of a sudden you're a woman? That's a slap in the face. And I think feminists are finally figuring that out. But it's always the case. We'll want to usurp either the ontology, the being, which is what trans movement is doing, or the roles, which is what the feminist movement did. Oh, thank you. So um, all that in the first question, the first part, male and female. Let's move on. Uh, After his own image, okay, actually, we already discussed that part, after his own image as well. So let's leave that. Let's jump, though. Yeah, because of our time. Let's jump into what it means that God created man in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Very briefly, let's take those. Knowledge, man has the ability to understand, truly understand, right? The fall affects us so that our understanding gets darkened. But God created man able to understand righteousness, okay? When you think of righteousness, um, what do you think of? person who is good, who is able to do the right things. That's really what it comes you know, down to. Holiness, what does that word mean? To be set apart? Okay, so with that, let's run with uh, one of the more common themes that we see all throughout Scripture. Adam was created in knowledge. That means that he could understand God's revelation. Remember we talked about reading the Bible? is an interpretation of God's special revelation. Being a scientist means being able to interpret God's general revelation and creation. 
We're all scientists, right? We can all look and say, oh, look, dark clouds, and uh, all that soon is going to rain. You know, that's just, you interpret that kind of thing. So, um, without sin, he was perfectly able to interpret everything. That means that he understood everything. That doesn't mean he knew everything. He understood everything that was presented to him. There was nothing darkening his ability to learn. So when we read in Genesis 2.20, Adam gave names to all the beasts of the field and to all the birds into the air, uh, I'm sorry, to all the cattle and then to all the beasts of the field, uh, uh, the birds of the air and every uh, beast of the field. That naming, as you know, the Old Testament idea of naming is a name represents their character. It isn't just, oh, I think I'm going to call this one Binky because he's so cute, you know. But, but rather, this idea of the name actually represents the nature and the character. Man had the ability to interpret the creation, to understand it, to recognize what made this animal, that animal, and so on. And so his naming and his conventions, all that showed perfect knowledge and understanding. He was a perfect scientist. He was a perfect observer. Does that make sense? And that means that he was also a prophet. A prophet. What is a prophet? Someone who sees the revelation of God, right? Scripture often calls the prophet the seer. Sees, observes, uh, receives the revelation of God and is able to speak it, is able to interpret it, is able to to enunciate it, right? And, And so on. Adam is a prophet. He's perfectly able to understand both what God has said to him uh, in special revelation and in the general revelation of creation, and he's able to interpret it properly and able to enunciate it. Adam is a prophet. The second thing we see is that he was created, uh, I'm gonna actually take the, uh, the second one next, just so we can follow, because you know where I'm going. If I say prophet, what's next? Priest and king. So let me take holiness uh, instead of uh, righteousness. So holiness means to be set apart. Adam was fully set apart, consecrated to God. To be holy means that you're set apart so that you can live for God. Adam, in every way before the fall, lived for God. God was the center of who he was. His heart was devoted to God. Um, I have a line here from G.I. Williamson, Williamson. It says, he was holy because he found his supreme delight in the Lord. Far from being afraid before he sinned, Adam felt at peace in the presence of God. So he was that perfect priest. His heart was fully devoted to God. And then we say that he was also created in righteousness. And when we talk about righteousness, we usually tend to use that word to say, you're better than somebody. He's, he's so He's so righteous. But being better than someone is based on the idea of obedience. Our righteousness is, you know, when we talk about the righteousness of Christ, we're talking about the perfect obedience of Christ that's been given to us, right? So to be perfectly righteous, he was created in righteousness, meant that he obeyed God and he had the ability to obey God. And when you understand that, then you can look at him and see him as a king before he sinned. A king is someone who rules, obviously, but he rules because he's able to do the things necessary 
God had, been, had placed Adam as steward over the creation. And if he was unable to do what he needed to do to obey that mandate to have dominion over the creatures, then he would not have been in right, created in righteousness. But he was created righteous, which means he had the ability to obey and to steward and to do the things that God wanted him to, be, to do, which was to rule. He was then the perfect king. So, uh, again, I'm going to quote Williamson. He says, Because Adam knew the Lord's will as a prophet and desired to serve him alone as a priest, he was also able to do the works of righteousness as king of creation. Does that make sense? That is what that line means in the, confe- in the, in the catechism when it says that he created us in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. He created us to be prophets, priests, and kings. Now we understand, now we can understand things that we read in the scripture. When we talk about the total depravity of man, that every last aspect of us has been affected by sin, we begin to understand that, right? Uh, We see that we're made both body and soul, and my sin affects my body. That's why I'm growing older and uglier and weaker and all that other stuff. You know, we begin to deteriorate because... Our bodies have been affected. A lot of Christians think, oh yeah, sin has affected my body and occasionally I sin. No, your mind has been, you, don't, you can't think clearly. You can't feel clearly. We have these terms that we use. Let me erase this. We talked about this already briefly, but let's put them up here. Let's see if you guys remember them. Ortho. Anybody want to help me out? What does that mean? Right, believe, okay. So, right knowledge, ooh, created in knowledge. Orthopathos, right, what's pathos, all you Latin folks? Right thinking is here. So right belief, right thinking, right knowledge, that's orthodoxy. Right feeling. And by feeling, I don't just mean, uh, you know, ooh, I feel good today. But what are you devoted to? What, your passion, the thing that drives you, you know, that. And then orthopraxis, right behavior, right Practice, I heard somebody say. The word, our, our uh, English word practice comes from the word praxis. It just means what you do. Knowledge. Uh, this one is uh, holiness. Righteousness. Um, prophet. Priest. King. Jesus has to be your, um, your perfect substitute. He has to be the human being that you and I can't be, right? So scripture again and again and again in the Old Testament tells us, it sets these offices up of prophet, of priest, and of king. And it shows us that all three are necessary. It shows them in different times and different places with different people. And they come together in Jesus, who we know to be the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Why did Jesus have to be the prophet, perfect prophet, priest, and king? Is because 
he has to be the perfect human being. He has to be what we were intended to be. And that means that when we're saved, God is now at work at restoring us to his unmarred image, making us perfect prophets, priests, and king. The process, of course, that won't be completed until the resurrection. But you see how all that works? You see how fundamental that is? And it's right there in that little catechism question. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. All good? Uh, We're just about up on our time. Uh, Oh, but I I had been talking about um, total depravity and just saying that we can now understand the doctrine of total depravity. Sin mars all three of these, doesn't it? It mars your ability to know. It mars your ability to feel and to have the right passions. You chase idols rather than God. Uh, And our behavior is affected, all of those. So you see, all these different things make sense and only make sense when you understand what God had intended for humanity to really be. I'll say one last thing. Um, You guys have heard of uh, the marks of the true church. Very often in in church polity, we talk about, uh, it came out of the Reformation as they were wrestling with, you know, is the Roman church, the medieval church, how do we know what a true church is? Because they're not preaching the gospel and all that other stuff. How do we can tell? So uh, this is across the board. Um, it wasn't necessarily a reform thing. It was just a reformational thing that marks the true church. Anybody heard that term before? Okay. So what are those marks? Anybody know what they are? The right preaching. The right preaching of the word? So that you can have the right belief, right? What was the second mark of the true church? Proper administration of the sacraments. The sacraments are all about you being devoted to God, right? Sacrament of baptism is the one-time sacrament of initiation. You leave behind the world and you are set apart in holiness, right? You are set apart, translated to the new kingdom, every time we do the Lord's Supper, you renew your devotion to God because of who he is. You draw near to him and he draws near to you and so on. That's all about the holiness aspect. And then the last mark of the church, discipline, discipline. the proper exercise of discipline, which is meant to make sure that your behavior is in line. You see how all this just kind of ties together? It's the, and all that comes from anthropology, from the right view of what man is according to scripture. He created us to be prophet, priest, and king. We marred it with sin, as we'll see later in the catechism. It'll describe how that happened and what happened and so on. If Jesus is gonna fix it, he needs to be the prophet, priest, and king that we could not be. And because he did fix it for us, he's now in the process through the Holy Spirit sanctifying us and restoring that image to us a process which will be perfected only at our resurrection and the, and the renewal of all things when the new heavens and the new earth come into being. But even the marks of the church, the things, the three things that make, that we use in our church, the word, sacraments, and church discipline are because of these three things. All good? All right, I think we're gonna stop there. Questions, comments, anything that you want to, uh, Brandon?
That's absolutely correct. Most of the prophecy in Scripture does not have a future component to it. It's simply the prophet challenging the people today with what God wants them to know, and yes, what God wants them to do, too, I mean, in, in that regard. But, uh, but yeah, that's the idea of passing on, understanding and passing that on. Uh, at times, it does include a future component, but yes, the word prophecy today has been almost a, uh, completely um, converted into foretelling the future, uh, and that's a very unbiblical view. Good point. Any other comments or just questions about what we've, this uh, wonderful catechism question? Nope, we're all ready to move on to coffee time. Um, <laughs> Again, I want to remind you of the beauty of the catechism is, and, and keep working on it, memorize these questions, you know, work on one a week or so on. Um, there's tons of, you know, uh, uh, apps on your phone that you can get, and uh, books and stuff that'll help you with that. There's a great new kids book that just came out, literally, and I asked Mary Jo to forward it. I don't know if she's done that yet because it was near the end of the week uh, to the people in the congregation. Um, it's a big old picture book of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I don't know what pictures you put in, but I'm sure it's got, it's got something to make it you know, a little more visually appealing than just questions. Um, but you can see that every one of those questions, you can just bare, mem- bare memorize them and understand, oh, we're creating knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. But there's so much depth there that you can pursue, and you can use them as, you know, as you grow and as you mature in the faith and so on. And you can review them. And as you review them, you can see more and more of those connections. And everything comes together. So it's well worth your time. All right. If there's, yeah, sure, Phil. Right. Yeah, we can probably touch a little bit upon that when we get to, and it's very, very soon coming up here, on the fact that, that we blew it. The big question, I think this is what you're asking, and correct me if I'm wrong, Phil. The big question is, if man was created perfect, how does evil, or creation was created perfect, how does evil enter into the world? And I think the biggest, there's two ways to try to help to wrap our arm, or wrap our you know, head around that kind of concept. The first one is to not look at evil so much as a thing. Because if it's a thing that gets introduced, where did it come from? If you understand evil as our failure to do good, and then it makes more sense. And that evil is a, is, a, is a blank. Does that make sense? You see where I'm coming with that? It's not a thing that exists. So say again. Well, the devil exists, and he is evil. God created the devil. But it doesn't matter whether you're asking, why did Adam do it or why did the devil do it? The question is, why are they evil? And let's face it. Man became evil, we can use that word, upon our, our fall. We became evil. Yeah, it's the absence of. So if that's the case, then evil does not have to be created. So we've removed that objection, right? That it really, because the Ten Commandments, what does the Ten Commandments call you to do? To do certain things. Evil is the absence of your doing them so it doesn't have to be a something right there, there, there's no like evil object as we said last week one of the, the one of the things that we see at the end of the catechism question we saw last week coming from genesis and all very good god's entire creation is good 
and how human beings and Christians have tried to always locate what's wrong with us external to us, uh, right? So for example, Lord of the Rings. I was just talking about Lord of the Rings with Tim here, who's visiting with us this week. And um, uh, this, um, you guys probably know a little bit about the book. Maybe you even read it or watched the movies and so on. And in the Lord of the Rings, there's this evil out there, right? And it corrupts and it reaches out and it's and all this. As much as I like Lord of the Rings, it still falls into that trap of making evil something external and tangible that you can grab a hold of. And if you have it, your hand, you can be tainted by it, but then you can let it go and so on. In reality, evil is our failure to behave a certain way. So that's the first way that we begin to answer that question is we remove the objection that evil is not a thing that gets introduced into creation. It's our failure to simply do what God wanted. The second way that we then begin to understand how did this happen is to understand that God created men and angels as free moral agents. What do we mean by that? We'll, dis- we'll discuss it a little bit more when we do anthropology, but I'll say, uh, uh, when we do um, the fall and all that, it's all still part of that section in Scripture on anthropology, on, on who man is and what man has done. But I'll, I'll say this much at this point. Even though God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass, you do actually have free will. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 9, there's a whole chapter. Oh, you Calvinists don't believe in free will. Whoever said that? You can actually believe in free will and you can believe that God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. And I already dealt with that in the uh, class in which we discussed um, God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. You remember, by way of summary, that because God ordains everything, he ordains your constitution, your makeup. And you always choose freely, but you always choose according to your desires, your inclinations, and your wants. Always. You've never made a choice you did not want to make, ever. I'm not going to defend that because I did that the other day. But um, you always choose according to your wants. If God had created us so that we could, that we were automata, right? We were robots and no moral agency, no free will. We would love God, but it would be of no value, right? Right, guys, okay, I'm gonna just say something that's true. Guys, we all, you know, in our worst moments, just wish that we had 20 girls who just did everything we wanted all the time around us, Right? They're just there to, but that's not a relationship, right? That's not a person of value. It would get old really fast because what makes that relationship special is that this person who has free will chooses to love you back even though you, we all know who we are. We're all scum. Oh, guys, we're just scum. And, and this woman still chooses to love me. Now it has value because of that. Does that make sense? God created a people to love him. And it would have meant nothing if that love was forced. So he created us with free moral agency, which gives us the ability to walk away. And we did. Um, I'll leave it there for now, because now we're 10 minutes past. Uh, I've got to get ready for the service. But um, the question of why we did, and why did he have that desire at that moment to do it, other than God foreordained it, I think is a mystery and will always be a mystery. I think the easiest way to take a good stab at it, and I don't think I'm too far off on this, if Adam and Eve, if Adam and Eve had passed their probation, because they were on probation, had they, we don't know how long it would have been, but had they not eaten of the, of the, of the tree in the middle of the garden, at one point God would have confirmed them in their holiness. 
so that they were no longer capable of sinning, just like it will happen in heaven, right? Had that happened, and by the way, that's happened with the angels. The angels, some of them fell, and God confirmed them in their unholiness, so they're incapable of being redeemed. And in the good angels, there's no chance of them falling now because he's confirmed them in their holiness, just so you know that. But had he done that with Adam, because Adam was created with perfect knowledge, if God would have said, I am righteous and I am holy, Adam would have said, I get it. I understand what that means. I am loving and I am merciful. Adam would have said, got it. I understand what that means. But you all know this. There's a difference between understanding something and really experiencing it. You see what I'm getting at? In one sense, I'm gonna blow your mind on philosophy here. Until Jesus became a human being, God did not know if we buy the word know, we, using the biblical term, the word know means in the Bible much more than just knowing knowledge, but the experience, right? Adam knew his wife, means they had sexual relations. It's a much more intimate knowledge, right? That kind of thing. God did not know what it was like to be a human being until he became one, until he experienced that, right? And that's in that sense, just I won't go into too much into that. Adam would have understood God's righteous, God's holy, God's merciful, God's loving. But until he experienced those things through a fall and through redemption, now he truly knows them experientially. Does that make sense? I believe, a bit of speculation here, but I believe that's why God ordained the whole cycle of creation, fall, redemption, renewal so that we on the other end can sit there and say, now we really know what it is, that we have a righteous and holy God who's also merciful and gracious, for what it's worth. Okay, we really will not stop. Let me go ahead and pray, and we'll get ready for service. Father, we're, we're, we're dealing, we're, we're uh, not knee-deep, we're not waist-deep, we're um, neck-deep into uh, really, really deep matters, delving into the very mind of God, into the mystery of why you do the things that you've done. But one thing is very clear, you are holy, you are perfect in your righteousness. You are the God who is perfect morally in every way. You are the God who's compassionate. You are the God who's merciful, who's gracious, who's loving. Both of those qualities are so evident in Jesus. They both come together at the cross where we see your righteousness and your compassion playing out as he takes upon himself in our place that wrath which we so richly deserve. We're thankful that we get to know who you are and we pray that we would continue to know you more and more deeply in knowledge that that would change our devotion, our holiness, and our righteousness, our obedience. Help us as we see these things to begin to put things aright in our worldviews so that we can understand the nonsense that's all around us in terms of what it means to be human, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. None of this makes sense until we look at your word. May we have compassion on our neighbors who are confused because we too were confused until you opened our eyes through the grace of the Holy Spirit working. And we pray, Lord, that we would be privileged to lead them and to help them come also on the path that we are to getting to know you once again. Help us now to prepare for worship where the one thing we want to do is again exult in your character. 
of righteousness and holiness, of goodness and mercy and compassion. And we pray that as we enter into worship, you would help us to see that all in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.